Welcome back to another episode of the Corporate Cowboys podcast. We've been reading together The Naked Corporation and how the age of transparency will revolutionize business. The authors of this joint are Don Tapscott and David T. Cole. (laughs) That's Don Tapscott, David T. Cole, published 2002 by Free Press. Now, we've read how the age of transparency, as it was perceived in 2002, would revolutionize the way business operates because businesses or business itself would become more see-through, more transparent to those that it actually impacts through its processes, its policies, the way it lobbies, the regulations that it supports or opposes, that sort of thing. So let's continue. I mean, if you want to start from chapter one, by all means, just pause this, start on chapter one, continue on through, and uh, meet us back here at chapter 10. So we'll, we'll begin now reading chapter 10, titled, Breaching the Crisis of Leadership. Just be aware that I'll be commentating. I'll be providing some commentary every now and then. And it looks like this is the last chapter. So let's make this a good one, shall we? Breaching the crisis of leadership. The new transparency has revealed a crisis of leadership in business today. Transparency demands new thinking about the nature of the corporation its relationship with other institutions and people, and even its role in society. When a change of this magnitude occurs, vested interests fight it. <clears throat> Just a quick side note, I've been harping on that concept, on that on that notion of, of business and business routine all throughout this book, almost every single chapter, essentially saying that... <clears throat> For many at the top, many of the big whales, slow-moving fucks as they are, for many of the big whales, any change means more work, right? Even if it's not more work. It's just that they've been doing what they've been doing for so long, they're necessarily stuck in a mental rut. They're inside of a box and they can't see out. They've dug themselves into a hole that they can't seem to get out of without outside help or some direction, right? If they were maybe told to dig diagonally, they could dig them, dig them, dig their way out, right? But any work of a different kind, because you would no longer be digging down, you would be digging up, if that makes sense, up and out. It's as if it were more work for them, even though it's something different because it's something they've never done. It just seems like more work. It's a tough point to get across. It's a tough sell when it comes to business consulting, management consulting, legal consulting, right? But it is what it is. And where these folks stutter, step, and stagger, other folks are leaps and bounds ahead of them in terms of innovation and creativity, regardless of whether or not they got blue chip money. Because at the end of the day, money doesn't mean a whole lot. You die, whatever legacy you leave behind isn't operating on the same rules that you once were. (laughs) right? They could be thinking differently also. So continuing here, when a change of this magnitude occurs, vested interests fight it. Yeah, that's the status quo, right? Niccolo Machiavelli wrote, quote, there is nothing more dangerous to execute nor more dubious of success 
nor more dangerous to administer than to introduce a new order of things. For he who introduces it has all those who profit from the old order as his enemies, and he only has and he has only lukewarm allies in all those who might profit from the new. Let me reread that again. Let me reread that again because I fucked it up the first time. Even though it's it's such it's such a deep theme to be to be threaded through this entire book. It's it's the overarching concept of this book, regardless of where you stand on on social media, on on communication and technology, regardless of where you stand, right? Transparency of corporations, transparency of government is the future, whether or not the corporate world order recognizes it or not, whether or not the corporate world order recognizes it. There you go. Cause I use the double negative. <laughs> Niccolo Machiavelli wrote, there is nothing more difficult to execute, nor more dubious of success, nor more dangerous to administer than to introduce a new order of things. For he who introduces it has all those who profit from the old order as his enemies, and he has only lukewarm allies in all those who might profit from the new. <clears throat> Just a quick comment again. It's because what's new is seen as speculative. Even though it's not. Even though it might not be speculative. It's just that there are more enemies than there are allies. Sure, the allies can piece together the type of creativity and collaboration that is that is um, uh, esteemed. That is celebrated in a ragtag team of individuals. That is celebrated in being a corporate cowboy. But it's just that it's an uphill battle when you've got more enemies who are stuck to the status quo and unwilling to change, unyielding to an even higher yielding change. To them, it just appears something different that they don't understand. And so they make it out to be bad. They make it out to be <laughs> exhausting. They make it out to be onerous and, and undue and unfair and unjust. And they painted any number of different colors just to keep from doing it, just to keep from changing. They're worse than children. They're worse than, than authoritarians and fascists. They're worse than communists, even though they're all in the same fucking bucket. Today, those vested in the past, from CEOs to corporate lawyers to PR departments, are resisting. Many firms claim to be open and have strong ethical values, but few truly operate with candor and integrity. Some leadership initiatives already stand out. In 2002, investor Warren Buffett called on firms to expense stock options and make their real costs visible to investors. Within a year, more than 100 companies had announced their plans to do so. Buffett's challenge made a difference. Buffett also encouraged companies to stop, quote, giving guidance. Instead, to take a page from Dragnet and give investors the, quote, facts, ma'am, just the facts. I don't know why they had to put that in quotes. Maybe it's a quote from Dragnet. Who fucking cares? <laughs> that's hella old. That's, that's old as fuck. I'm not. <laughs> All right. 
corporate leaders continuing. Corporate leaders like UK-based Cooperative Bank pioneered a warts and all approach to reporting social and environmental performance. A growing list of firms in various sectors is finding the leadership capacity to quote do the right thing every day. I don't know why doing the right thing is so hard. I mean, I, I understand why doing the right thing is, is hard because doing wrong is is, is thrilling. It's in it's uh, it's stimulating. It's it gives a rush. I get it. I totally get it. it you're bold enough to break the law to skirt around international treaties to bribe foreign heads of state. <laughs> yeah, that shit's alluring. That shit's intoxicating. I get it. I get it. If you want a little bit of context, go read Confessions of an Economic Hitman. They are they are essentially the uh, not the uh, arch rival, right? But they are the counterpart on a global scale to what is a corporate cowboy. The book is called Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins is the author. Uh, it's a very short book. I believe it's only like a hundred something pages long, but it's very insightful. <coughs> Buffett also encouraged companies to yada, 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 continuing a growing list of firms in various sectors is finding the leadership capacity to quote, to do the right thing every day. But others struggle to find leadership for change. Rather than actively harness the power of the new business integrity, they wait for transparency to be forced on them. Rather than address the need for integrity in everything they do, they spin their worthiness and good deeds. Many managers treat transparency as minimal compliance with the law. They see business integrity and stakeholder engagement as burdensome, burdensome costs. They see business integrity and stakeholder engagement as burdensome costs. You'll have to uh, excuse me if I repeat a sentence or two or if I go back and, and again, uh, re-enunciate and pronounce words because this is a, a professional development podcast. So if I'm developing professionally my oration skills, my verbal speaking skills, my verbal skills, verbal speaking, fucking relax, Alex, my verbal skills, uh, my linguistics you just got to bear with me and either follow along. You can talk shit if you want under your breath, but don't talk too loud because then you'll miss what I'm saying. <laughs> they may think, continuing, they may think of corporate responsibility as someone else's job, perhaps the philanthropy department. Many are skeptical, even cynical about the, about the claims. Many are skeptical, even cynical about the claims touchy-feely language, and perceived anti-corporate motives of those who argue for openness and sustainability. Executives are so busy fighting fires in a brutal business environment that they can barely find the time, let alone the will, resources, knowledge, and skills to lead a transition to a new model of the firm. I get it. I get it. If you're running around putting out fires, just running out from fire to fire, you don't really have time to lead. And in that sense, you're not a leader. You shouldn't call yourself a leader. You're just a fucking manager. You're managing your business so it stays afloat, so it stays solvent, so it doesn't go under, so it doesn't fucking go up in flames. You're, you're, you're just in fire control. You're damage control. If that's the only state that you operate in, you're not a qualified leader. Admit it. 
Admit it. Until you turn around, until you change the way you think, and until you can see the paradigm in which you work in and then want to address it, you're going to turn up. You're going to turn upward and change your supervisors, right? Because they're also watching you. If they're not leading you, they're just watching you. They're also your manager. They're just managing their fires and putting out fires after fires. <laughs> if there's no fucking leadership, you guys are just wallowing in, in, in a stagnating pool of capital, festering like a fucking disease. <laughs> All right, Alex, continue. Fucking continue. They may think of corporate responsibility as someone else's job, perhaps the philanthropy department. Many are skeptical. Executives are so busy fighting fires with the shakeups in accounting, consulting, and banking. Traditional advisors seem ill-equipped to help. Well, it's because traditional advisors are also in the same hierarchical organization as their own clients, also putting out fires. So they're advising them on how on how best to pet out fires and not mitigate them. I mean, if they were in the business of mitigating fires and actually propagating innovation, actually promogulating creativity through a firm, there'd be less fires because you would have more autonomy. Issues would be solved in real time with collaboration and creativity. Continuing, how will your company muster the capacity to lead this transformation? What are the leadership opportunities for each of us in each of our many stakeholder roles? Who will lead? Who will open the door? (laughs) I got an answer to all those questions. It's the fucking corporate cowboys. If it ain't me, it's you, the reader, the listener. If it's not me, it's us. We lead ourselves. We help one another to create better business opportunities, to make business better always, to be more professional, to always be finding, to always be in search of mutual ground, mutual benefit, walk away from every transaction, a win-win. The next subtitle here, subheading, sorry, it's the CEO, keeper of the key. For the last decade, there has been considerable discussion regarding the genesis and nature of organizational leadership. Peter Senge, who coined the concept of organizational leadership, no, sorry, Peter Senge, who coined the concept of organizational learning, argued that the person at the top, regardless of IQ, can't learn for the organization as a whole. The Lee Iacocca type leader who creates a vision and sells it down into the organization is being replaced by the model of the leader who draws on the collective brain power of employees and other stakeholders and motivates them to collaborate for success. There is a corollary to this new model. In the hundreds of firms we've studied, leadership can start anywhere. I'm going to read that again. There is a corollary to this new model, the new model of business, a business that is better. In the hundreds of firms that have been studied, leadership can start anywhere. That's the concept of being a corporate cowboy. Sure, you might be in the middle of the pile of this hierarchical organization. You might think you're a fucking nobody because your manager tells you that they don't pay you to think. 
right? Or we just pay you to fucking report numbers. We don't pay you to think. We don't pay you to go out of your way and do creative shit, right? But it can start anywhere. You just have to cowboy up. That's the whole point. I mean, the, the theme of the podcast is derived from the cocaine cowboys of the 70s, 80s, maybe 60s, but 70s and 80s for sure, into the 90s. It's individuals from hierarchical organizations with three letters as their identifiers, right? Three-letter agencies who splintered off and started their own mini empires. But, you know, instead of Coke, we're pushing capital. We're corporate cowboys. The Lee Iacocca, we already did that. Uh, there was a corollary to this new model. In the hundreds of firms studied, leadership can start anywhere. For marketing directors, IT executives, public affairs managers, CFOs, business unit leaders, plant supervisors, and even corporate lawyers. Your boy, Alex. However, though change may begin anywhere in the firm, it must be driven from the top. The CEO defines core values, norms, and culture, no matter how inspired, well-meaning, or determined others may be. No one else can change the firm's fundamentals. A bank teller may develop an important new process. A salesperson may devise a more open approach to working with customers. An engineer may develop a new product that is more eco-efficient. A regional manager may develop a strategic service that transforms a company's offerings. But the CEO sets the corporate character. Some firms are fortunate to have been founded by CEOs who established a culture of integrity from the start. The Johnson & Johnson credo came from the company's CEO and sole shareholder. Over the years, that value system was propagated by successive leaders, chosen partly for their values. Recently retired, J&J CEO Ralph Larson was said to have never made a speech where he didn't talk about corporate values. We're not perfect, was a quote he would say, we're just trying to do the right thing. Similarly, the HP way originated with Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard. The corporate character of these firms is rooted in the resilience and depth of these values in their culture. CEOs lead by example, whether they intend to or not. They determine the quality of conversations within a firm, combative or collaborative, judgmental or open. Are controversial matters taboo? Do all interested parties participate in discussions of matters that concern them or do secret cabals make decisions behind closed doors? When someone raises a new idea, is the reaction to explore it or to debunk and defeat it? Do people exaggerate or are they truthful and frank? Do managers keep their cards close to their chest or do they speak with candor? Do people hoard knowledge or share it? Is the workplace infested with corporate politics or enriched with trust? In a touchy situation involving values, do managers ask, quote, what is the right thing to do? Or, quote, how do we get out of this mess? It all starts with the CEO. Just a side comment, but this was in 2002. This, is, this shit's back in 2002. Those questions all start with you, the corporate cowboy. The next subheading, a world of dilemmas. 
CEOs face a complex challenge. Though transparency and related values drive business success, we live in a complex world filled with competing interests. Leaders constantly face dilemmas and hard choices. Doing the right thing can entail tough trade-offs. The 2001 Novo Nordisk, the 2001 Novo Nordisk report on its environmental and social performance is aptly titled Dealing with Dilemmas. The report states, quote, we do not pretend to have all the answers. Rather, we believe in the value of openly and honestly presenting the facts as well as the issues that confront us. Indeed, there is rarely an easy answer. We often find ourselves on the horns of a dilemma. Our activities are in areas where values and ethics are put to the test on a daily basis, close quote. With striking candor, the report elaborates dilemmas in the pharmaceutical business and the company struggles to resolve them. And there are a couple of points here. Point first, first point, point one. <laughs> How do we improve access to healthcare and make our products affordable and yet continue to operate a profitable business? Second question, second point. How can we continue to increase production and our use of resources and yet contribute to sustainable development? Third point. How do we protect our intellectual property rights and yet help share knowledge that can save lives and generate income for others? Fourth point. How do we stimulate diversity and equal opportunities and yet maintain a culture of shared values? Fifth. How can we pay due respect to animal welfare and yet continue to use animals in testing in order to meet the safety requirements for pharmaceutical products? Six, how can we use biotechnology to create significant advances for mankind and yet respect the public's anxieties about genetic engineering? And number eight, how do we do business consistently in an unjust, unequal world and yet respect the diversity within that world? The next subtitle, next subheading, Resolving Dilemmas. CEOs set the tone and the agenda but most today are still locked into the old view. Even when the spirit is willing to provide effective leadership for the new thinking, there are still many dilemmas and tough choices. We shall now take a look at some of these dilemmas. With candor comes vulnerability. This is like a little mini theme here. With candor comes vulnerability. Procter & Gamble CEO Alan Lafley says, Quote, I want PNG to be the most transparent company in the world, so I have to set the example by being candid in my dealings with all stakeholders. End quote. But openness requires a willingness to be vulnerable, a trait that is not high on the personality profile of most CEOs. When stakeholders lack transparency, sophistication, opening the kimono, especially when you're not superbly buff, presents risks. When Laffley became CEO in 2000, the company was not performing well. Between January 2000, when the stock peaked at $116, and March 7, P&G stock fell 52%, a loss of $85 billion in market capitalization. On the June 2000 day Laffley was named as the new chief executive, P&G stock fell another $4. After 100, sorry, after 15, after 15 days on the job, 
the stock fell another $3.85. As Latley describes it, quote, an early personal confidence builder. <laughs> More like a character builder, but Laffy's just, Laffy's being a little goof. Laffy's being silly. <laughs> he remembers, quote, the business media were not kind. Reporters and commentators had a right to express their views, and they exercised that right with enthusiasm, end quote. From the Cincinnati Inquirer, March 9th, headline here says, PNG investor confidence shot, to Time Magazine on March 20, saying, trouble in brand city? We love, we love their products, but a tech craze market? We hate their stocks. But in tech... Let me repeat that. From Time Magazine... March 20, trouble in brand city. We love their products, but in a tech-crazed market, we hate their stocks. And from the Dow Jones Wire, April 27, analysts unsure when Tide will turn for PNG. Ha ha ha, get it, Tide turning for PNG because they sell Tide. Okay. For Laffley, the lowest point was a September 2000 front page headline in Ad Age. Quote, does PNG matter? Hey, yo, all this talk about matters, talk about matter, talk about what and who or what, when matters is pretty, it's pretty hot in 2023, but you know, whatever. Laffley says he dreaded media and analyst interviews, but he decided that rather than hide, he would reframe the media encounter. In each discussion, he shared at least one of his biggest problems and asked for advice. In early interviews, he asked, most of the questions, seeking insights on how to overcome dilemmas. Rather than in a PNG office, interviews took place in a retail store or consumer's home. Quote, the goal was to engage the writer in thinking about the company through our eyes, he said. Sure, there are vulnerabilities that come with being open, but candor pays off. Close quote. Seagate CEO Bill Watkins says that when dealing with customers, Quote, you've got to openly communicate your problems and even product weaknesses to your customers, and that's not easy. He says, quote, the normal tendency for most companies is to take data and put a spin on it. Let's not leave too many people know about that. Wrong. Let people know you have a problem. Tell your customers the truth. You get great accountability when you are open and you build trust. Close quote. He explains that, quote, some customers overreact to bad news, but for most, they develop a closer relationship with you. As for making yourself vulnerable, he says, quote, I've had very few problems telling people the truth. The problems always happen when I've tried to spin something. It always falls apart on you. Customers will find out about problems, so you might as well tell them the truth. You're way more vulnerable if you hide stuff. Spin or concealment is like cheating on your wife. You get caught and you wonder, what was I thinking? Watkins describes how he had a big problem with one of his customers that could have been swept under the rug. Watkins opened up, explaining to the customer that the problem was actually worse than he thought and then committing to fix it. Quote, the customer believed me and decided to stick it out because he knows I don't BS him. When we fixed the problem, our relationship was strengthened. If I tried to hide it, I might have gotten away with it, but I would have missed the opportunity to strengthen trust and our relationship, says Watkins. 
Quote, we strive to epitomize the open enterprise. These days, it's hard to be too open. Uh, another uh, little mini theme here. What do you do if you're in an industry where competitors externalize costs and where acting with integrity could destroy your firm? A central task of leadership is to define and redefine your organization's frame of reference. What seems a scary threat in one frame becomes a compelling opportunity in another. Consider Patagonia. Outdoor enthusiasts live the irony that their activities degrade the very forests, lakes, and mountains that they cherish. True, there is a world of difference between dune buggy riders who plow up virgin wilderness and meticulous hikers who never leave behind an ounce of debris. But no matter how careful you are, it's nearly impossible to pass through the backwoods without a trace. Most makers of outdoor sports equipment and clothing ignore the continuing contribution of their products to environmental pollution and degradation. Yvonne Schoenar, founder and major shareholder of privately held Patagonia, chose a different path right from the founding days of the company in the early 1970s. He invented, quote, clean climbing tools and levied an earth tax, 1% of all sales, for environmental causes from 1985 on. The company did well in the 1980s, but then expanded too fast and faced an expense and cash crunch in 1991 when sales contracted. Bankers demanded reorganization and the company laid off 20% of its employees, a painful experience for a firm that takes pride in its supportive workplace. Chouinard responded not by giving up on his principles and making clothes on the cheap, but by transparently redoubling them to reframe the company's future at arguably even greater risk. In Patagonia's 1991 product catalog, he wrote, block quote here, last fall, we underwent an environmental audit to investigate the impact of the clothing we make. To no one's surprise, the news is bad. Everything we make pollutes. Polyester is made from petroleum is po polyester, sorry, polyester because it is made from petroleum is an obvious villain, but cotton and wool are not any better. To kill the boll weevil, cotton is sprayed with pesticides so poisonous they generally render cotton fields barren. Cotton fabric is often treated with formaldehyde. We need to use fewer materials, period. We are limiting Patagonia's growth. Last fall, you had a choice of five ski pants. Now you may choose between two. We have never wanted to be the largest outdoor clothing store in the world, only the best. Three, end block quote. Three years later, Chaunard led his company into its boldest move ever. It announced that henceforth, it would only use organic cotton in its clothing. This entailed several risks, any one of which could have put the company under. Just a side note, a dollar, a dollar says, a dollar says that this fucking co uh, organic cotton uh, venture is not as organic as you think. A dollar, fucking dollar says it. <laughs> there are a couple of points here. Point first, first point. At the time, 
the pool of organic cotton farmers was tiny. If demand for its products jumped unexpectedly, the company could be caught unable to serve its customers. Second point, organic growing, absent pesticides, is risky and yields only one crop per season. Third point, Patagonia had to reorganize its outsourced supply chain in new ways, which might not have worked out. Fourth point, organic cotton was 25% more costly than conventionally grown cotton. And though the company absorbed parts of the additional cost, it still had to ask consumers to pay more for the natural product. The industry establishment responded with prophecies of doom and its own spin. Quote, Conventionally grown cotton doesn't use more pesticides than any other commodity, said David Guthrie, manager of cotton agronomy and physiology at the National Cotton Council. Quote, historically, cotton used chemicals damaging to the environment, but they have long since been removed from the arsenal. Studies have shown that consumers aren't willing to pay more than 10% more for organic cotton. It's limited to a small niche in the upscale market where price is not a consideration, end quote. Chouinard became an advocate for organic cotton across the industry and began to educate his competitors. Several times a year, Patagonia hosted companies like Land's End, Levi Strauss, L.L. Bean, Eddie Bauer, Gap, Nike, REI, and Canadian Mountain Equipment Co-op on organic cotton field trips. Its typical tour presented a scary enough picture of conventional cotton farming. The land is first sterilized to kill weeds. Young cotton plants are fed with chemical fertilizers and sprayed with insecticides and pesticides. In California alone, says the company, 57 million pounds of pesticides are applied to cotton each year. Five ounces of chemicals go into the cotton for every t-shirt. Harvesting uses hormones and defoliants. Not only does residue leach into the soil and groundwater, some of it goes directly into the human food chain. Pesticide-covered cotton seeds are fed to cows, and so ultimately pesticides make their way onto your dinner table in beef, while cotton seed oil goes into food snacks. Meanwhile, at processing plants, employees who sweep excess cotton from floors routinely lose toenails and suffer rashes from the waist down. Patagonia initially experienced a drop in cotton clothing sales due to its price hikes, but soon its, quote, niche of customers roared back. Thanks to diligent effort, the price of organic cotton came down somewhat while production systems improved. The company flourished right through the 2001-2003 recession. Now, some of the competitors it has trained, including Nike, Norm Thompson Outfitters, REI, and Mountain Equipment Co-op, have begun the switch to organic cotton. Chouinard has made a significant contribution. But in late 2002, an active, semi-retired 64-year-old, he remained a man with no illusions, even a bit despairing. Quote, there's no such thing as sustainable development. There's no such thing as making sustainable clothing, any of that stuff. We're causing a lot of pollution and a lot of waste. That's just the way it is, and we recognize that, and that's why we kind of do our penance. <laughs> you know, this motherfucker sounds sad, dog. This, this motherfucker sounds sad as fuck. 
That's what happens. You reach 64, reach your 60s, your 70s, and you start giving the shit away. You start giving your money away like motherfucking Rockefeller, like Carnegie, like, like Ford. You just start giving the shit. You, you can't... You can't bear to hold on to any of this fucking money, burning a hole, you're literally burning a hole in your soul. <laughs> Hilarious. The next little sub theme here stakeholder interests may not align with yours. How, for example, can you open and engage NGOs if they have no interest in your success? Where stakeholders and the firm share similar interests, engagement and resolution of differences is achievable. But some groups in your stakeholder web may want your company to fail or may make impossible demands, such as that McDonald's's stop killing cows or that Shell stop selling oil. <laughs> Effectively orchestrated engagements can change the values and motivation of all parties. In 1990, Novo Nordisk began to develop its first proactive environmental strategy, the basis of today's, quote, triple bottom line thinking. It invited a, it invited, it invited, sorry, I'm just pronouncing, just, just, just working on the pronunciation. It invited a stakeholder group, including some NGOs from around the world, to a two-day dialogue session. The quote, the, the guests toured the firm's plants and laboratories to see, for example, how animals were used in experimentation and how the company approached thorny issues like genetic engineering. According to Lise Kingo, both the NGOs and Novo changed their thinking through the process. Quote, we learned not only about their concerns, but got important insights about what we could do differently. They learned about what a biotech company is and what dilemmas we confront, end quote. Whereas the NGOs may have initially been skeptical or hostile, they internalized the challenges facing Novo. They recommended a communication strategy where Novo would openly discuss its dilemmas. Quote, the key was being open, she says. Quote, we decided in any interaction with stakeholders that we would be open and honest, explaining the things we were doing well and also where we have problems. If you try to paint a glossy picture, you'll fail to engage. By being transparent, we negotiated, we initiated, sorry. By being transparent, we initiated a dialogue and gained trust. They learned as well. This is a two-way process, end quote. This is not to suggest that firms should carelessly invite enemies into the corporate tent. Rather, it illustrates that openness and engagements are so powerful that they can cause fundamental changes in the behavior of firms and their stakeholders to the benefit of both. All right, continuing here with the next little mini theme. How do you resolve conflicts between your personal economic interests and those of shareholders and other stakeholders? When it comes to the central issue of compensation, CEOs face a dilemma. Due to the separation of ownership from control, many have the power to determine or unduly influence their own compensation. They have big leverage over board compensation committees. Shareholder resolutions are expensive to mount and have no binding power. 
Many boards still view their CEO as indispensable and buy outdated myths about the competitive CEO market. Close to retirement, many CEOs are willing to take some flack to sock away their nest eggs. They can usually find peer data to justify their expectations. And after all, their compensation is a pittance compared with the vast resources they command and critical decisions they make, isn't it? But today, the whole world is watching. Because of transparency, the cutting edge of leadership for CEOs is their own compensation. A CEO's compensation plan is a litmus test of personal and corporate integrity. When earnings are in the tank, employees laid off, and shareholders suffering, CEOs must do the right thing. And greed is not a good example to set even when the company is doing well. The first step toward fixing executive compensation is to take control away from executives. CEOs that we interviewed tackled the dilemma by first ensuring that their compensation is determined by an independent board committee, sometimes with help from independent external advisors or the firm's own human resources leadership. They worked with the committee to redefine the rules of executive compensation. These CEOs put honesty, accountability, consideration, and transparency into practice, even if it hurt them personally. Novo Nordisk says the driving principle for CEO compensation is competitiveness with similar international pharmaceutical companies and other major Danish companies. But Novo seems to weight its averages low. In 2002, CEO Lars Rebeen Sorensen received remuneration of $740,000, including a bonus of up to four months' salary, but no stock options, presumably because of the company's 2002 performance problems. This was a 3% increase in remuneration over the company's better-performing 2001 year, when he also received a reward of options worth $100,000. The value of all company options he accumulated over his career was $800,000 and his shares were worth $375,000. Yeah. <laughs> CEOs like Sorensen are a minority. Many others still set the wrong example. In April 2003, The Economist said, an analysis by the Investor Responsibility Research Center of the 2002 packages of 180 U.S. chief executives, none of them new recruits, from the 1,500 largest S&P companies finds that the median salary rose by 9%, the median cash bonus by 24%, and the median value of awards of restricted stock by almost 20% over 2001 levels. The median number of share options granted rose by 7.5% and both the value of options held and the median value of options exercised held steady. Close quote. An extreme example is the gain of $570 million realized in 1997 by Disney chairman and CEO 
Michael Eisner. From 1996 through August 2003, Eisner's cumulative pay was more than $700 million. During that same six-year period, Disney's share price fell 23%. Eisner, it seems, has been spending time in Fantasyland to the detriment of Disney's real-world stakeholders. Damn, it's almost like... <clears throat> Never mind. This book was published in 2002, but <laughs> it still holds true. BMO Financial Group CEO Tony Comper displays a different value system. In 2002, Comper reworked executive compensation with a board compensation committee and the bank's human resources executive. The new mix balances short, mid, and long-term incentives on the basis of the individual executive's ability to get results. <clears throat> the change reduced the use of stock options by more than two-thirds. More important, it tied options very tightly to demanding performance objectives aligned with shareholder interests. BMO's stock options vest at the rates of 25% a year over a period of four years, a practice that is common. However, the bank has added a performance features that only allows executives to exercise options once a share price hurdle has been met. Most senior executives can only exercise a portion, 33%, Illuminati confirmed, of their options once the share price has risen 50% and another portion, 34%, once the share price has increased by 100%. Ooh, those are, those are tight, tight restrictions. Says Rose Patton, the bank's EVP of human resources and head of its Office of Strategic Management, quote, in setting these high hurdles, we are encouraging executives to hold options for the long haul and to realize gains only when other shareholders have also realized equally substantial gains. Close quote. Few companies so closely align executive rewards with sustained shareholder returns. I mean, I like that. I like that. Why? Because it incentivizes uh, executives to do a good job, not just be blinded by the short term they want short-term uh uh returns and short-term profits and are willing to sacrifice the shareholder in the long run just so they could walk away with money in their pockets i like that that's that's a that, that's a good uh, a good concept the next sub theme how do you foster openness when your own management especially your lawyers fight you question mark CEOs can find themselves at odds with the corporate culture. As described earlier, Seagate's Bill Watkins wants no secrets. He wants his customers to know everything, good and bad, about the company's products and strategy. But he faces opposition, his own lawyers. Our lawyers are just scared to death of the transparency, he says. Quote, they're hassling me all the time saying I can't do this or I can't say that, close quote. Watkins is not being critical of his legal team. Quote, that's their job. They think the less you say, the less there is for people to use against you. And I suppose they have a point. But 
I have a business to run too, and I view transparency as central to my strategy, close quote. The same thing happens with some marketing staff who like to downplay product weaknesses and exaggerate strengths. As the song goes, quote, accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. Watkins view, quote, every company has problems, quality, technical, features. We all have them. And if everyone is hiding them, they don't get resolved as fast as if they were open. I've made more mistakes than anyone in the history of storage systems. Because I openly admit that I can create a culture where mistakes get fixed faster, everyone, that's customers, marketing, and product people, feel comfortable bringing their problems forward. We just don't have time to be closed. Close quote. Nice. The next sub-theme In a world where you're as good as your last quarterly report and your job may hinge on your next one, how do you defend the strategic thinking and long-term perspective required to build an open enterprise? Damn, that sounds like the fucking mob. (laughs) You're only as good as your last bag. You're only as good as your last envelope. You're only as good as your last quarterly report. Otherwise, it's the fucking chopping block. CEOs have always confronted the dilemma between long-term strategy and short-term action. However, as transparency grows, business integrity cannot be relegated to the back burner. CEOs need to make choices that ensure the sustainability of their firm. PNG's Laffley faced crisis when he took over the company in June of 2000. But the only solution was to get some fundamentals in order. Quote, it's my job to build a sustainable firm. And the first order of business is to ensure that the company and everyone in it behaves with integrity. I am very forgiving on business failure. I'm unforgiving on integrity failures. The policy is no tolerance. Close quote. For him, This is a very practical matter. Integrity is required for everything, short, medium, and long-term. He took over a firm that needed a change, and he understood that change is scary. Quote, if the organization fears change, this kind of new thinking won't get the oxygen it needs to breathe. Core purpose and values help people overcome the fear of change because they clarify what will not change, close quote. He also needed to ensure, quote, trust and mutual interdependence in the company. It's imperative that people see their own successes linked with that of others inside and outside the organization and that they trust one another to do the right thing to fulfill the mutual responsibility, close quote. The third challenge was to unleash and inspire PNG people. Quote, command and control is long dead, he says. Quote, I'm a believer that the role of top management is to make a few strategic choices that inspire and then unleash the organization to deliver, close quote. Integrity is the precondition to any short-term success. For Laffley, 
quote, every one of our 100,000 employees is an ambassador for the company and our values, close quote. This is particularly important given that he views P&G brands as trust marks. Quote, our brands stand for election every day. A flaw in our integrity would instantly destroy trust and the brand. You find the time to be a good company, close quote. In 2002, P&G scored number five on business ethics 100 best corporate citizens list. These firms illustrate model business strategies in how they handle challenges from layoffs and sweatshops to predatory lending and the environment. They show there are better ways to handle these issues than the ruthless practices that are too often the norm. According to researchers at DePaul University, these firms have significantly better financial performance than others in the S&P 500. Integrity is something firms need now. Just do it. The next subtitle here, the next subheading, the new innovators. Leadership must come from the top for a firm to harness the power of transparency. But leadership can also start from anywhere. It can start somewhere in the lower ranks or even through an external party. In open enterprises, leadership can simply mean carrying the mantle of business integrity in everything you do. Just a quick comment here. Leadership starts with you. As a corporate cowboy, you ought to move as if you lead. Be aware that people are watching you. Be aware. I mean, be mindful that you're also watching people. You're taking account of people's successes, of people's failures of how operations in your particular organization, in your firm, in, in, in your company, how those successes and failures manifest, what went wrong. And it could be because of a lack of communication. It could be because of an incongruity between departments, maybe two uh, different people in two different positions aren't interacting uh, appropriately or aren't interacting as effectively as they should in order to exploit their positions and make something happen. They're just fucking twiddling their thumbs or playing grab ass, right? These are things that you take note of as a corporate cowboy and you use them. Those are tools you can use. You could, you know, potentially weaponize. You could, uh, potentially immunize. Ooh, ooh, that actually came off pretty fucking hard for 2023 <laughs> for 2023 it came off pretty fucking hard all right on a cold morning in january 2003 we traveled to new brunswick new jersey to the headquarters of johnson and johnson to spend a day interviewing corporate executives as we entered the main lobby we saw a 10 foot high stone tablet displaying the j and j credo the company's 65-year-old statement of corporate values. Receptionist Pat Doherty said, quote, please hang your coats behind our credo. We decided to get a jump on the day's interviews by asking her, so what is this credo anyway? She became decidedly reverent, describing how our credo was the foundation of the company, how everyone in the company worked and lived by our credo how each year she completed a survey of how well she thought the company and her boss 
were behaving according to the credo. And how as a receptionist, she was the public face of the company and had decided it was her job to make sure guests understood the credo and its importance to the company. Later in the afternoon, we told company CEO Bill Weldon the story. Quote, I'm not really surprised, he said. Quote, you'll get that reaction from many people in the company. He described how every few days a tough problem will arise where he'll ask someone at J&J, is this a credo issue? Weldon says his first and foremost job as CEO is to protect and strengthen J&J's corporate character. Yo, this guy sounds like a fucking boss. <laughs> is to protect to protect and strengthen, right? I mean, I don't know if he's aggressive in doing it or if he's just proactive in doing it, right? I mean, there is a difference. There is a difference. That's that's uh, for another episode, not for this one. But really, it just comes down to whether or not you bend the rules or you break them, right? And what I mean is bend bending your rules to cover to cover others and to provide others with a benefit, or if you're out, just breaking the rules of the world, right? And that that is uh, that ultimately that comes down to whether or not you do business beneficially, whether or not you conduct business for the betterment of business, for business sake, not, not just for profits. Yeah, profits are good to have, but profits come with good business. I mean, you do bad business and that shit comes with blood money. That ain't, that ain't the type of profit you want. That is not the type of profit you want. Later in the afternoon, we told Bill Company, bah, 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 where did it go? Where did it go? Okay, <clears throat> Weldon says his first and foremost job as CEO is to protect and strengthen J&J's corporate character. From receptionist to CEO, people throughout the company champion business integrity as their personal responsibility. As it ought to be, as it ought to be, business integrity. That's a, that's a good term. That's a good concept. Shit, I might pull that from this book. Business integrity. Integrity being you taking account you, you, you're taking responsibility of creating better business, creating business that is sustainable. And what I mean by sustainable is something that is reproductive, something that is universalizable, something you could have others practice and that you would both benefit from. Because if the way you're acting a business, if the way you are acting a business, someone else impressed that upon you and uh, you suffered for it, then you ought to know that you're fucking business up. You're fucking business up for other players. And you can expect to get clipped sooner or later. <laughs> Fuck your corporate character. <laughs> All right, continuing. The fight for candor and values can come from other surprising places. Johnson & Johnson General Counsel Roger Fine is disarming. He doesn't sound like a corporate lawyer. Former J&J CEO Ralph Larson describes Fine as a compulsive truth teller. Fine believes that, quote, unless corporations act out of sense of responsibility to stakeholders, including society, they will forfeit their freedom to operate. The forced transparency of Sarbanes-Oxley and other government initiatives are the logical result of firms acting irresponsibly. Quote, it's like we're now spending 70% of our time dissipating heat rather than building the business. When trust is destroyed, governments have to step in and create a surrogate, a process of forced transparency. 
This is unfortunate. A few murders have occurred, and now everyone is being treated as a murderer. Damn. Why does that sound so literal? <laughs> close quote, by the way. Close quote. Fine thinks corporate lawyers need to be the leaders, not the blockers of transparency. Lawyers, almost by definition, seek control. But in J&J's decentralized culture, no one is in command. 200 relatively autonomous companies, each with its own management and governance structures, work together. Quote, no one is telling them how to succeed. So my job is to facilitate transparency, open communications, strong personal relationships, and adherence to core values, rather than pulling structured levers, setting rules, and doing the other things that corporate lawyers typically do, close quote. In corporations around the world, people at various levels work hard to build open enterprises. Cisco VP of positioning, Ron Ricci, views transparency, values, and stakeholder engagement as central to the firm's reputation. Quote, trust and reputation flow from behavior. You need to show people what you are and what you've done. Customers say, quote, don't just tell me how to do it. Tell me how you did it. Close quote. He argues that a corporate value system, quote, enables people to make decisions that are not in the guidebook. Close quote. And this is best done through, quote, cultural stories. At Cisco, a corporate value is frugality. Company founder John Morgridge rejected the expense reports of CEO John Chambers when Chambers had upgraded an airline ticket to first class. Says Ricci, that story keeps the value part of our DNA. I don't know. It seems a little, seems a little like virtue signaling. Regardless, though, we'll continue. We got to take it at face value. We don't have all of the facts. The next subheading here. Living and working in an open world. The rise of transparency and the changing values of firms will lead each of us to rethink our relationships with corporations as well as our personal values, priorities, and actions. There's a little mini theme here. Leadership and work. If you're fortunate, you work for a firm that has adopted an open enterprise model dedicated to transparency, stakeholders, and sustainability. Your world is rich with opportunities to participate in its transformation and success. Yeah, that's that's if you're fortunate. That's if your organization knows what the fuck it's doing and knows how to utilize communications, technology, and information in order to weave a web of creativity and innovation where everybody is pulling, not only pulling their weight, but pushing the company, right? Pushing the company forward. Everybody is doing it equally. But if you've got fucking gatekeepers at the top instead of leaders, uh, expect to suffer. Expect, ooh, man, expect the degree of cutthroatness to, <laughs> to be unrivaled. All right. And, and the more closed off, the more gatekeeping, the more cutthroat. I mean, and, and some and some... Some corporate cowboys fucking thrive in that environment. They love spilling blood. If you work, continuing, if you work for a traditional, opaque, short-term oriented firm, you face a dilemma. You can tune out, go through the motions. You can look for another job. If you think your firm has little hope of changing and you have alternatives, it may make sense to abandon ship. 
Let's face it. Open enterprises are better places to work. They are companies where people listen and where the quality of conversations is high. They have an interest in knowledge development of everyone and in the sharing of knowledge necessary for effective work. Involvement with a company that lacks the new business integrity can be dangerous. Many corporate directors face personal legal action or even criminal charges and would like to turn back the clock. There may be conflicts of interest in your business that undermine your firm's integrity that can get you into trouble. Increasingly, these firms will be vulnerable in the marketplace, undermining your job security. Like many hardworking and decent people at Enron, Anderson, Tyco, and WorldCom, the brush of irresponsibility can tarnish you and your career. If you conclude your company has hope, there is much you can do to be a leader for change. The starting point is to be clear about your own values and to ensure that you conduct your working life accordingly. Just as business integrity pays off in the age of transparency, so obviously does personal integrity. I'm telling you, fam, yo, just a side comment, I'm telling you, and I've said this repeatedly, this has been one of the many overarching themes to the Corporate Cowboys podcast, is that you take care of business, and business will take care of you, right? (laughs) I don't want to get religious here. So I will continue. Yes, the ambitious, deceitful, game-playing backstabber who claws his way up the corporate ladder at the expense of others and the firm has always been with us. Perfidy has benefited many, but it is increasingly likely that bad behavior will be seen as a liability by boards of directors and top management. With trust so important to collaboration, those who undermine trust are harmful and will be isolated. Human nature is not somehow changing. People will still have ambition. However, personal integrity is fast, becoming a critical asset for ambitious people and those who simply want to do their part. This is not to suggest we each strip down completely. Personal information belongs to you, and you should tightly control its distribution. Corporations have the right to have secrets, called information security. As individuals, we have the right to something different, privacy. This is a human right that does not apply to firms. You may provide companies with personal information, but that information is still yours, to be used only for the purposes for which it was provided. Measure, demonstrate, and popularize the impact of integrity on everything from employee loyalty to brand relationships and share price. Create an awakening in your firm and with its external stakeholders. Disarm people with your candor. In a transparent world, the honest broker has new power. Use it to shape the future of your company. Damn. Is this, a, is this an anarchist book or some shit? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's a, it's a, I mean, that's why I, I chose to read it on the, um, on the podcast because I find it to be relatively objective and there are some nuggets. I mean, there's some golden nuggets here every now and then, and it's good to read them 
as if somebody else has thought of them, right? They aren't new thoughts. These have been out there in the ether for our consideration to act on. I mean, even though this is talking about corporations, you know, the government is another corporation. The next subheading, leadership as a consumer. You also have new power as a consumer. When companies fail, don't let it stand. When companies are dishonest, punish them. When they make promises, hold them accountable. Damn, are we talking about politicians or what the? Joking. The new transparency has revealed deep conflicts of interest in many industries, professions from investment bakers to accountants, physicians, and even journalists need to get buff. As a consumer, you have the power to identify such conflicts and demand integrity. Too bad we can't do that with the CDC right now and the government. As the business, I mean, it's 2023. Go read a book. Go go read go read some headlines and read. actually read between the lines. Read between the headlines. How about that? As the business environment opens up, expect a Pandora's box of conflicts to be revealed. As a customer, get active. Scrutiny pays. The next subheading, leadership as a business partner. You and your company have partners as business webs replace vertically integrated firms. Sure, look for best price and quality, but also be sure your partners behave with integrity. Your company, whether you produce chocolates, running shoes, cosmetics, diamonds, or fence posts, will be held responsible for what happens in your supply chain, as Nestle, Nike, PNG, De Beers, and Home Depot learned. Stand up to coercion in the supply chain by the 800-pound gorillas at the top. Organize for fair supply chain practices. Abide by your commitments. Pay your suppliers on time and deliver what you promised. Be open as transparency builds trusts, drops transaction costs, and improves metabolism. These words ring true for the business web. Quote, excellence is the result of habitual integrity. Close quote. Damn, that, that's a fucking... That's a fucking mic dropper right there. <laughs> Excellence is the result of habitual integrity. I like that. I like that. So far, I mean, the, the, hey, the book and I are neck and neck, fam. I said, I said, read between the headlines, right? And sure, that sounds really vague and generalized and esoteric and shit. But excellence is the result of habitual integrity. I mean, you got everything you need packaged in one sentence. Mine. I mean, you still got to go look for the truth. You have to use your brain more, which is what I'm trying to have you do. I'm trying to be thought-provoking, right? So if I say read between the headlines, I'm letting you know that everything that is presented to you is that. It's presented. Everything that's reported to you is that. It's just reported. It's not that you are discovering it the first time. No, 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 no. Somebody went out and found it, curated it, interpreted it, Potentially with a bias, with some type of motive or an agenda, and are now presenting it to you. (laughs) Look up the book, How to Lie with Statistics, and then also type in Bill Gates next to it and click Google Go. (laughs) And you'll see what I mean. How to Lie with Statistics. (laughs) All right, continuing. The The next subheading. Leadership as a shareholder. Okay. 
As an investor, you own the company through stocks and mutual funds. Your fiduciaries have the tools to be active investors, and you have access to the information required to hold them accountable. Firms with the new business integrity perform better. Demand that your fiduciaries get wise and invest accordingly. Don't passively accept proxy voting statements if you aren't happy with management's choices. It is far easier to find other investors and organize protests than ever before. I don't know about all fucking that, bro. I don't know about all that. <sighs> organize protests? What the fuck are you going to protest? Why don't you become a corporate cowboy? Hold on. Well, it's saying shareholders, I guess, right? Well, anybody could be a fucking stakeholder. As we learned through this book, you could be a consumer, you could be an employee, you could be an executive and still be a shareholder, okay? So if you can't be a corporate cowboy, what the fuck is the protest going to do? The next subheading, continuing, leadership as a citizen. How do the firms in your community give back in exchange for their license to operate? Many old-style corporations have manipulated our world in everything from electric power markets and cozy government contracts to government elections and policies, typically to our detriment. What our communities and the world needs now are corporations who understand the link between business integrity and success. In our communities, we need to move beyond philanthropy. We need firms that understand how externalizing costs hurts not just society, but themselves that see the link between integrity and their own viability and sustainability, that understand the deadly liabilities of the corporation as a fortress, and that know that firms cannot succeed in a failed world. The next subheading here, forging the 21st century corporation. Ooh, I like this last subheading. And is it the, I think it is the last subheading, forging the 21st century corporation, fam. Hang on to your seats. Each of us has an opportunity to ensure that our personal values are not only appropriate for ourselves, but are consistent with the firms we work for or lead, the companies we buy from, the stocks we purchase, the business partners we select, and the corporations that we as citizens license to exist. Ooh, you get that? Corporations are licensed. That means they're chartered. That means that they're allowed to exist. But, you know, sometimes corporate likes to flex its nuts every once in a while. I mean, as is evident through the military industrial complex, the medical industrial complex, the pharmaceutical industrial. All right. Fucking all right. Relax. (laughs) Transparency brings clarity to the stakeholders of the firm. It's as if we're all emerging from a dark age. Increasingly, we can see clearly and take action. We can discern right from wrong, worthy from unworthy. There has probably never been a more exciting time to be in business, nor a more dangerous one. The transparency genie has escaped from the bottle, wreaking havoc, on some and bestowing sustainability and long-term success on others who embrace it. The genie demands that the corporation change from paternalistic, inward-looking, and self-indulgent to engaged, stakeholder-focused, responsive, and responsible. It also calls forth a new kind of leader, the executive who has integrity in his or her bones, who leads with intent and by example. 
who rather than hunker down in the face of transparency's power, galvanizes the firm to harness it, and who has the courage to do the right thing and the vision to build a corporate character to withstand the vicissitudes of a volatile new century. Transparent, because keep in mind, this, this book was written in 2002, right? So this is, it's a new century according to this book, but we're almost a quarter through the damn thing, right? So <laughs> be mindful going into like the next quarter, fam. Like transparency hasn't changed, right? The benefits of transparency have not changed one bit. Continuing, transparency calls on yesterday's managers to be tomorrow's leaders. As we enter the age of transparency, the future won't just happen. It will be created. If we all get involved, our values, aspirations, and blossoming expectations can transform the corporation and the world for the better. The end. That actually concludes (laughs) chapter 10 of The Naked Corporation, How the Age of Transparency Will Revolutionize Business. The authors of this joint were Don Tapscott and David T. Cole. This piece was published 2002 by Free Press. My name is Alex. I've been your host these past 10 episodes and for the entire podcast, to be honest, up to season seven, episode 10. This concludes this book. Thank you so much for joining me, having allowed me to read to you and, you know, to practice my, uh, my, my verbal reading skills, my reading out loud skills, my oration skills, those social skills and keeping them sharp and whatnot. And, uh, and, and also to give you some commentary on, on just what the, uh, the credo, I guess, of being a corporate cowboy is all about. Actually, no, I don't guess. That is the credo of being a corporate cowboy, is to create better business, to facilitate better business, and to take care of business. Because as a corporate cowboy, we only got business to depend on, right? We aren't born into trusts. We aren't born into wealth. Everybody starts off poor. Everybody. doesn't matter if you're born into a rich family. You were born not knowing shit, right? So just because you live in somebody's shadow, just because you might be in the 1% or belong to the 99, shit doesn't matter. You begin with the same opportunities to improve with the same opportunity to create better what is the objective good You have the same opportunity to conduct business in a manner where everyone benefits and you yourself can earn yourself a reputation along with everybody else as a corporate cowboy. So again, thank you very much for having joined me and I'll catch you on the flip side, the next episode, as we continue on our journey. I mean, the grind doesn't stop. We want the struggle to be short term, but this hustle is forever. Not some corporate cowboy shit.